Hey everyone, and welcome back to Inside the Morgue. We're your hosts and favorite autopsy techs, Jess and Alice. This week, we're revisiting Crossing Jordan. We're covering Season 2, Episode 10, titled Oakum's Razor. Unfortunately, this episode doesn't have a lot of morgue scenes, but it does get into some interesting forensic techniques that we thought we would kind of talk about since we thought they were interesting. So let's get into it. We start with the annual coroner's convention. And I've never been to a coroner's convention, but I'm sure they exist. This sounds fun. I want to be invited. I wonder if there's autopsy tech conventions. You know what? We don't get enough recognition. We should start them. (laughs) Autopsy techs unite. Let's do it. (laughs) Have conventions. It's just us hanging out. It's just like a bar crawl. (laughs) A bar crawl or getting coffee. Oh, yeah, that's true. Doesn't have to just be a bar crawl. I would get coffee with a bunch of autopsy techs. Let's do it. Autopsy techs, hit us up. And like swap stories. That'd be fun. That would be fun. Oh, no, we need to do this now. <laughs> so I was half joking, but now I want to do it. <laughs> so coroners and death investigators often go to like continued education courses and are required to complete like certain training and like annual training. It's annual, right? They do like an annual training. It is annual. Mm-hmm. We're not required by the state to do it, but we can do it just for like our own purposes. But I know that our deputy coroners, they are required by the state to have, I think it's like a certain amount of credits of like continuing education per year. Mm-hmm. So they stay on it. In the show, a Dr. Benjamin Hawthorne is giving the keynote instead of Dr. Macy, who it was supposed to be. And nobody in the office is happy about this because of something called the, quote, Sullivan thing. Once again, we're hopping in in the middle of some drama that we know nothing about because we don't watch the episode before. (laughs) (laughs) So I have no idea what the Sullivan thing is, but it sounds bad. During Dr. Hawthorne's speech, he references Occam's razor, which means the simplest answer is usually the right one. Just then, the team's pagers all go off at the same time. Dr. Macy leaves in a rush to head to a scene. He meets the detective at a penthouse where a woman named Cassandra Morgan lays dead in a pool of blood with a knife in her chest. Her manicurist called the police when she didn't show up for her standing appointment. Cassandra had done pretty well for herself and was a defense attorney. So because she was a defense attorney, the detective asked Dr. Macy if he knew this woman and ran into her in their line of work. And he responds saying he doesn't know her personally, but he knows her husband. Her husband is Dr. Hawthorne, the man who is giving this speech at the coroner's convention. Dun, dun, dun! The drama. So while processing the scene, Dr. Macy asks one of the police officers where his gloves are. And the officer responds, in my pocket. And Macy says that this scene needs to be processed with a fine tooth comb due to the victim being the spouse of a forensic expert. And you know we love our PPE here at Inside the Morgue. We'll throw a green flag there for them. Dr. Macy goes on to say that every piece of evidence at the scene will be second-guessed if the husband becomes a suspect, because we find out that this Dr. Hawthorne, he basically has made a career of being an expert witness for the defense, so he basically rips apart, like, forensic testimony. If they try to go after him, he's going to try to rip it apart. He's done this professionally, so they need to be so, so careful with all of this investigation. And Dr. Macy says that it doesn't look like a burglary. It says it looks like a crime of passion and that 90% of the time the killer is the husband or the boyfriend. So this unfortunately is not that far off. In an article from The Atlantic from I think 2017 by Olga Kazan titled Nearly Half of All Women Are Killed by Romantic Partners, it states that the CDC, Center for Disease Control, states that domestic violence is among the leading cause of death in women. 
To quote the article, the CDC analyzed of women in 18 states from 2003 to 2014, finding a total of 10,018 deaths. Of those, 55% were intimate partner violence related, meaning they occurred at the hands of a former or a current partner or the partner's family or friends. In 93% of those cases, the culprit was a current or former romantic partner. The report also bucks the strangers in the dark alley narrative common to televised crime dramas. Strangers perpetrated just 16% of all female homicides, fewer than acquaintances, and just slightly more than parents. So that is super depressing to read that domestic violence is among the leading cause of death in women. Unfortunately, true. We kind of see some of that, too, with females who are murdered. Yeah. It's normally by, like, their boyfriend or an ex-lover. I feel like any, a lot of times people who are murdered, it's by, like, someone they know. Just in things you read, and like it's oh yeah, yeah, it's it sucks. So back in the show, the detective tells Macy to keep an open mind. They go back to the convention to talk to Doctor Hawthorne, who is very pompous. However, he gets more serious when told his wife is dead. He guesses that she isn't just dead and that she was murdered, and he already knows that he's a suspect because they were recently separated. Doctor Macy asks where he was last night, to which he responds nowhere in a very pompous and annoying way and then he tells the detective that when they are ready to press charges that he will be in his presidential suite at the murder scene dr macy is standing over the scene in a tyvek suit when two techs from the morgue knock on the door and you know what we'll give another green flag for tyvek suits so basically tyvek is just a brand but like the tyvek suits that we're referring to are basically just like a coverall proper protective equipment like it covers your feet to the top of your head it'll often have a hood you look like a marshmallow you do look like a little marshmallow and i think i've only worn tyvek suits like a couple of times mm-hmm. and it's usually just when case if there's like a lot of bugs like bed bugs in a case that like i don't want to be on my clothing and or on me and come home with me so i'll cover myself literally head to toe with a tyvek i also wore a tyvek when i was helping with an anthropology exam and i was cleaning bones oh interesting is there a reason for it to be worn in an anthropology exam no i think the doctor that i was working with was just like hey like let's wear tyvek suits and like i was like all right cool <laughs> they were just like you know it'll be fun Tyvek suits. A Tyvek suit. <laughs> so in the show, the techs ask what Dr. Macy's doing in there alone, and he says he was thinking about the killer, and the techs assume he surmised it's Hawthorne. He says it isn't his job to surmise. Dr. Macy says he doesn't want his objectivity compromised by a desire for revenge, so he's very determined to do this by the book. One of the techs asks why he's working in the dark, and Dr. M says it's easier that way to take the room one piece at a time. Now, I've never processed a scene before. I'm not a CSI, so if any of my CSI friends and listeners out there do this, is it true? Do you always have the lights off? Is it easier to process that way? Because, I mean, we work in a morgue, so we love having a million lights on to see what we're doing. We have talked about that so many times. We hate the little, the trope of there just being like one little spooky light in the morgue. Yeah, because the morgue's supposed to be spooky. Yeah, obviously. So if anyone who actually does process scenes, let us know. Comment, DM us. I'm really interested. I was trying to figure out if he was just 
he had the lights off because he was just in his mind thinking, trying to think his way through the scene, and he focuses better with the lights off. Mm-hmm. But I was like, how do you... Like, it's less overstimulating? Yeah, but I feel like if you're actually processing the scene, you should have lights on, because what if he accidentally steps on a piece of evidence he can't see? <laughs> yeah, I feel like the only time you would turn the lights off is if you're using, like, an alternate light source for different flashes. Yeah, True, that makes sense. But I've never processed a scene either. So. Me neither. I'm just a tech. I'm just a tech. <laughs> so the other tech guesses that Dr. M is trying to get into the killer's head like Silence of the Lambs. Great movie. And book. I've actually never seen it, and I know I should. I think you'd like it. I think you really would. I'll have to add it to my list. So Dr. M ignores him and tells him that every object a man might touch in this apartment is to get printed. Dr. Hawthorne says that he and his wife were estranged and that he never lived in the penthouse. If that's true, there shouldn't be a trace of him in there. And then we cue to a montage of them swabbing and dusting every inch of the apartment. There's a short clip of them using a fingerprint duster and a microscopic camera to look at hair samples. So the fingerprint duster, I think, is what a lot of CSIs use and fingerprint examiners use. You use this classic powder, like a black powder, and you lightly brush the powder on the surface to lift the prints using a lift pad, which is kind of like fancy tape that you stick and pull off of the powdered surface. So then the print, you can see it on the tape. Mm -hmm. I feel like you see that all like the classic powder thing is what you see in the show. But there's also like magnetic Mm -hmm. ones you can use and... There's so many other different types of fingerprinting you can do, but I think one of the most common and the one most seen in these shows is the fingerprint one. But again, our CSI friends, let us know if that's not true. I love the little duster. It looks like from Beauty and the Beast, Fifi, I think her name was, who's a feather feather duster. duster. And it's literally like a miniature version of that. It's adorable. Can someone please make a meme? of like a Beauty and the Beast version of a fingerprint kit where it's like everybody has a cute little face. Like <laughs> a little fingerprint. Those would be such cute stickers. Someone please we make We should make them. them. <laughs> I don't know how to make a sticker. I can draw okay, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I don't know how to make a sticker. Back in the lab, they find Hawthorne's prints on 80 items in the apartment, including the murder weapon. That's a lot of items. Seriously. That's a lot to process, too. Like, that's time-consuming. Oh, my God, yeah. And also for claiming he's never been in that penthouse. What a liar. Okay, Jan. They also took a blood sample from the kitchen sink. The sample doesn't match Cassandra Morgan, but they can't be sure it's Hawthorne's either unless he gives a sample to match it to. They start to get suspicious because Hawthorne is a forensic expert, so he should, theoretically, know how to commit perfect murder. I love this. Because this is exactly what everybody thinks of us, too, that we automatically know how to get away with murder because we know about anatomy and that we we know how to dissect and we know mostly everything about forensics. So I'm going to give a shout out to one of our Instagram friends, My Forensic Path, Julia. She has really, she's a fellow autopsy tech and she has a really cool page about her journey to like becoming a forensic pathologist. And she had a really great post about how people always tell her that they think they could commit the perfect murder. And 
she basically myth busted the entire like everyone Mm -hmm. and it's on her page and she's like one of the most common things i hear is how someone commit the perfect crime by injecting potassium or insulin under their tongue and i don't want to just read her whole post go to her page and check her out she's great but one of the first item on her list is personally i'd never let anyone inject anything under my tongue so there will be defensive wounds (laughs) i love that but it's just she's she's great and she is very intelligent and gives a lot of really cool information on her page but that's immediately what i thought of too it was like people always think oh you must know how to commit the perfect crime i'm like there's no such thing as the perfect crime but maybe no just kidding (laughs) because people lie and evidence doesn't exactly it's one of my favorite sayings yeah there are definitely people out there who just think we know how to commit the perfect crime dom always jokes he's like oh well if i ever go missing look at jess but you'd never find my body because she knows how to get away with murder oh my god i always (laughs) (laughs) i always get that too whenever i'm like out with costa and he's they're like, oh, well, what do you do? And I tell them what. I'm like, oh, I'm a forensic autopsy technician. They're like, oh, Coasty, you better watch out. That's Yes, that's always the reaction. And I'm like, why do you think I'm trying to murder everyone? Get away with it. I'm very anti that. I'm very anti murder. I'm on the other side, guys. I make good choices. <laughs> we are good beans. We make good choices. So back in the show, it doesn't make sense that Hawthorne would be this sloppy. Just then, he comes in and he talks to Dr. Macy and says that he thinks he might be in some trouble. He apologizes for his behavior at the convention and Dr. M says he's over it. Dr. M tells him that even though he's not a police officer, everything Hawthorne tells him may be used against him. Dr. Hawthorne takes offense to this, and then Macy tells him that his fingerprints were recovered on the knife. He shouldn't be interrogating this man. I know we talk about it all the time in the show. He's a pathologist. That's not his job. And, he's like, and he like fully admits, I know I'm not a cop, but I will use this information against you. Can he? So is this a red flag? I think we should. I don't think he can if there's no lawyer present and he has no authority. Everything he says to him, he's not a cop and he's not an investigator. So like, would it just be hearsay? It's all hearsay. Would it be hearsay? Yeah. All right. All of our our law friends. I took one law course. So I think this is hearsay. (laughs) I object. I turned to (laughs) Elwood's. Yeah, you know what? We're adding a red flag. That is a red flag. Yeah. He fully admits I'm not a cop. That also makes me think of the meme where it's like, are you a cop? You have to tell me. (laughs) Order, order in the courtroom. Which also isn't true. I don't think they don't have to tell you if they're a cop, guys. Don't, don't believe that. (laughs) Yeah, I think this is for sure a red flag. We should ask Shelly from Crime Scene Queens. We should. We should. Hawthorne says he used that knife because Cassie invited him over Saturday night to reconcile. However, they ended up arguing and he left that night. Macy says that rigor puts Cassie's time of death at 11 p.m. the night before, which is Sunday. And we've talked about this before, but you can't really tell exact time of death. That's really just a phrase that all of these TV shows use. However, rigor can be really helpful in indicating the approximate time of death or how long somebody's been down. Honestly, I think every time this comes up, we always talk about it in our episodes. So if you've binged us or listened to a few, you've probably heard it. But just a refresher, rigor sets in in about two hours after death and expands to the limbs a few hours later and then completes around six to eight hours after death. And it stays in your body. Your muscles stay tightened for around 12 hours. And that's when you're in like full rigor and it's extremely hard to break. And then it fully dissipates at around 24 hours. 
So Hawthorne says he wasn't there Sunday, but he knows this looks bad, and he says Dr. Macy is the only one that can prove that he didn't do it. Hawthorne later comes into the precinct willingly without an attorney to, quote, build up some goodwill. He says he isn't a friend of law enforcement because his testimony, quote, reveals the incompetence of police. He often testifies for the defense, which we said earlier. Hawthorne believes the police are out to get him, and he says he was there Saturday night, but not Sunday night, when his wife was murdered. He was in the hotel suite preparing for his speech. The detective notices that Hawthorne has a cut on his hand, and Hawthorne says he got it from a cut vase, and that is exactly how he pronounced it. Yeah. He was, like, being really snobby. He, they just had to make him the most pompous person yeah. in this episode. I feel like whoever wrote this episode probably knew a person like this and was just getting, it was like their diary. They're like, I need to, I need making to get fun this of him. out. I mean, like. They were just like venting. I have so much pent up anger. Venting in their script. They're like, oh, this asshole says vice. <laughs> <laughs> the detective also notices scratches on his arms, which Hawthorne claims he doesn't remember where he got. He claims that he was framed by Cassie, his dead wife. He says he knows where she got the idea. She defended a man who was accused of stabbing his wife to death. Her defense for him was that the wife was suicidal and killed herself and then framed him as her final act. The detective tells Dr. Macy to take a blood sample from Hawthorne and also to check out the scratches on his arm to see if they are a match for his wife's nails. That is just a new... He's accusing his wife of killing herself to just get back at him that is a new level of petty a new level of revenge i feel like that's so much work you're putting into it it's crazy to be like you know she was mad at me you know how i'd really get him if i killed myself if i die i shouldn't call that petty but i think that's so insane for him to be like you know what it was my wife no it is framing me you know she did it <laughs> she, she can't tell you she did it but she did it so a tech runs some tests and the blood matches the blood in the sink. However, the swabs from the forearms had fingernail fragments that did not match the nails of the decedent. Macy says the scabbing pattern indicates they occurred the night before and it looks like another person must have scratched him that night. So Dr. Macy goes to another presentation at what I'm assuming is still the coroner's convention to find Hawthorne. Dr. Macy asks why Hawthorne's blood was in Casey's sink. He says it's because his hand, it came from his hand because Casey had thrown the vase at him. So snobby. I know. So it appears that the fight that they, I'm so sorry for anybody who says vase that's listening. I really don't think it's that snobby. I just The way that he says it, it is snobby because of his personality. Yeah. I just don't want any of our lovely listeners to be like, wow. Because now, now I'm being snobby. We're not judging you. Now I'm being snobby about how people pronounce things. Maybe I'm the snob. Am I the trouble? I'm the snob who says vase. <laughs> Am I the problem? Don't want anyone to hate us. We love you guys. You can say you can say vase all you want. This guy can't. <laughs> so it appears that their fight did get physical that night, even though he said it didn't. He then says it was Cassie who scratched his arm, which Doctor Macy knows is a lie from the fingernail fragments. And he says, I know you're lying and I hope you fry. He gets up to leave, but then ends up coming back. <laughs> and Dr. Macy asks who really scratched Hawthorne. And he says that it was a woman named Paula. He says he didn't come forward with this information before because he has a airtight prenup with Cassie. And if this Paula came forward and told her story, it would be clear that Hawthorne had cheated on Cassie and all of his money would go to Cassie's estate. He says he didn't do this and that all the evidence will prove it. He says Macy needs to listen to the evidence and not the story because 
people lie evidence doesn't. So Dr. Macy goes to the detective who got a warrant to search Hawthorne's penthouse because the blood in the sink was a match for Hawthorne. The detective says that because Dr. Macy knows Hawthorne, him being involved is a conflict of interest. Dr. Macy says the detective isn't seeing clearly because he already thinks Hawthorne is guilty and he won't see any other options. The detective can't believe that Dr. Macy believes Hawthorne is innocent. And Dr. Macy says he is just weighing the evidence. The detective said that they found a crumpled up sock in Hawthorne's closet that had dried blood on it. The blood was a match for his wife's blood. Dr. Macy takes the sock to run some tests for himself, and the detective comes in very upset because the chain of custody was broken. So yeah, he has every right to be upset, so we'll give a red flag here for this pathologist breaking chain of custody. Chain of custody is like so important for evidence in any case, and it's basically what it sounds like. It's the chain of custody. It's basically like a paper trail that shows whose hands was on the evidence at what time, who gave it, like, if I give Jess, say Jess worked for a different office, different department. If I was giving Jess a piece of evidence, I have to sign a chain of custody saying that I'm giving it to Jess. Jess has to sign the chain of custody saying she received it. And at what time, what date, what the evidence was, like the, a list of everything that I'm giving her. And this is so important if anything goes to trial to prove that none of this evidence was tampered with. It was accounted for at every moment that it was in someone's hands. So yeah, the fact that Macy just took this sock without any chain of custody is big red flag. Could mess up everything. Dr. Macy says that he found EDTA, which is not found in human blood, but a preservative used in forensics labs. So EDTA is a chemical that binds certain metal ions like calcium, magnesium, lead, and iron. And it's used in like medical tubes to prevent blood samples from clotting and to remove calcium and lead from the body. But we use it in certain tubes so it'll prevent the blood from clotting and we can send it out for testing still. And it's also used to keep bacteria from forming a biofilm. So the blood on Hawthorne's sock seemed to have been planted from a lab sample of his wife's blood. The detective claims that he was the one who bagged the sock at the scene, and he was the one who brought it to the lab, and he watched them test it at the lab, so it never left his sight. But Dr. Macy thinks that somebody planted the blood, and the detective isn't buying it, and he thinks Macy is accusing him of planting the evidence. And as they're getting in a heated battle, uh, Dr. Macy has a light bulb go off in his head, and he thinks of Occam's razor and says that Hawthorne has been playing him this whole time. Dr. Macy thinks that Hawthorne committed the crime in Boston so that it would become Macy's case, and that he made it sloppy on purpose so that they would assume it wasn't Hawthorne and that he was being framed. But Occam's razor means the right answer is the simplest one. So Hawthorne framed himself and actually killed his wife. The detective and Macy go back to the scene to see if they can play through the events that they think happened. They think that Cassie confronted Hawthorne Saturday night about cheating on her and how she was going to take his money because of the prenup, and she threw a vase at him. The neighbors heard everything so that there was proof that he was there Saturday and not Sunday when she was murdered. So Hawthorne decided to come back on Sunday the day after to kill his wife. Him being there the night before would be the perfect reason for why his DNA and prints were everywhere at the scene. And Dr. Macy asked to see the list of everything that they lifted the prints from. And they find his prints on a newspaper that was in the apartment, but it was dated for Sunday, thus placing him in the apartment on Sunday. So they interrogate Hawthorne again, and he doesn't seem threatened or impressed with their new evidence. He thinks if they went to court that the juries would favor him since he's good with juries. But Macy listened to the evidence, and they got their guy, whether he believes he'll get off or not. And that's kind of just where we end with this. There's a whole subplot of, so I know it's called Crossing Jordan, and we didn't talk about her once. 
there's a whole subplot of her like doing her own thing that I I recommend watching. It was it was very entertaining, but it just didn't really pertain to all the forensic stuff that we were talking about and we were talking about a lot. So we left that out. But yeah, so this is where we end with this case. So he framed himself thinking that he wouldn't get caught. But these are trained forensic professionals working on the case. So was his whole, I know he wasn't trying to get caught, but did he not think that he would get caught in the end? He was just trying to make it look like he was being framed. So they wouldn't think it was him and then he'd get off. Yeah. You know that (laughs) there's an episode of SpongeBob where they're looking, I forget what happened, but they're looking for someone who did something and they blame it on Patrick and Patrick was trying to look for the person the whole time. And he's like, it was me the whole time. It's the perfect crime. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's like what I thought yeah. <laughs> when he's like, he's framing himself. I was like, oh, I did it. It's, it's me, me the whole time. It's the perfect crime. It's me. Hi. <laughs> I'm the problem. It's me. He very much was the problem. 100%. All right. So this episode made us think of a very well-known case that involves some very interesting forensic work. And just a quick warning, this case does involve children. So if you're sensitive about that, Maybe don't tune in for this. But this is the case of the murders of Colette, Kristen, and Kimberly McDonald. At almost 4 a.m. on February 17, 1970, dispatchers at Fort Bragg received a call from Army Dr. Jeffrey McDonald, who was reporting a stabbing at his home. Jeffrey sounded very faint on the phone, and then the dispatcher heard the phone clatter to the floor or against a wall. Ten minutes later, military police arrived, believing the calls would be a domestic disturbance call. The front door was locked and closed, and it was dark inside the home. After not getting an answer, the police went to the back door to also find it closed but unlocked. They entered the home and walked into the master bedroom to find Colette, 26 years old, laying on her back after an apparent beating. Her forearms were later discovered to be broken, which a pathologist who performed her autopsy noted were likely defense wounds as she raised her arms to protect herself. She has also been stabbed 21 times in the chest with an ice pick and 16 times in the neck and chest with a knife. A bloodied and torn pajama top lay over her chest and a knife lay next to her. Next to her, Jeffrey, also 26, was laying with his head on her chest and his arm around her neck. As the police approached, Jeffrey whispered to check on the children, Kristen and Kimberly. Five-year-old Kimberly was found dead, also bludgeoned and stabbed. Two-year-old Kristen was also found stabbed, with what appeared to be defensive wounds on her hands. After receiving resuscitation efforts, it is said that Jeffrey sat upright and exclaimed, Jesus Christ, look at my wife, I'm going to kill those goddamn acid heads. The word, quote, pig was written in blood across the couple's headboard. It was later determined that the blood was Colette's. As Jeffrey was carried out on the stretcher, he kept asking to see his children. When questioned by Sid, the criminal investigation division, McDonald claimed that at 2 a.m. he had cleaned up the dishes from dinner and went to go to bed. Kristen, their two-year-old, was in bed with her mother, Colette, and had wet Jeffrey's side of the bed. Not wanting to wake his wife, Jeffrey claims that he took Kristen to bed and went to sleep on the couch. He then claims that he was awoken later by the sound of his wife and five-year-old daughter Kimberly's screams. He says when he stood up to run to them, he was attacked by three male intruders. He says the shorter of the men wore lightweight surgical gloves. 
He described a fourth attacker that was a woman with blonde hair, possibly a wig, wearing knee-high boots and a floppy hat. He says they kept chanting, Acid is groovy, kill the pigs. He claims the male intruders attacked him, and during the struggle, his pajama top was pulled over his head and around his wrist to restrain him. He says he was knocked unconscious, and when he awoke, he stumbled from room to room and attempted to resuscitate his wife and children. He pulled the knife from Colette's chest, and after feeling no pulse, laid his pajama top over her chest and then called for help. Military police were told to check all vehicles for the attackers that McDonald described. While investigating the scene later in the morning on February 17th, the investigators found the murder weapons just outside the back door. They were determined to have come from the McDonald house and had been wiped clean of prints. Jeffrey claimed to have never seen the items before. The living room where Jeffrey claimed he was attacked showed little signs of a struggle with three armed assailants, as he described. The McDonald's neighbors claimed they heard no sound or disturbances throughout the night. No fibers from Jeffrey's torn pajama top were found in the living room. However, fibers from his pajama top were discovered underneath his wife Colette's body. A fragment of skin was discovered under Colette's fingernails, which unfortunately the evidence was lost. No blood or fingerprints were found on the phone that Jeffrey had used to call police after the attack, despite him claiming to have tried to resuscitate his children. Yeah, so you'd think he would have had, like, blood Mm -hmm. all over his hands when he grabbed the phone. Yeah, if these children were stabbed and he was trying to resuscitate him, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, you would think. A bloodstained tip of a surgical glove was found under Jeffrey and Colette's bed. Authorities believe that the glove was worn to right pig on the headboard and the glove was later found to be the brand that jeffrey used and kept in their family kitchen by mid-march that year sid obtained the forensic testing of the blood hair and fiber samples that all contradicted jeffrey mcdonald's story one interesting thing about this case is that every member of the family had a different blood type which is a statistical anomaly that's insane there were four people in that house and they're all related and they all had different blood types That's crazy. And this is also in the 70s, too. So this was before DNA. So this was so important in the forensic investigation, as we'll find out. So investigators were able to track movements throughout the house based off of this blood evidence. Kimberly's blood was found on his pajama top, even though Jeffrey had said he wasn't wearing it when he attempted to resuscitate her. Jeffrey's own blood was found in two important locations— in the front of the kitchen cabinet where he kept his surgical gloves, and on the right side of the hallway bathroom sink. Colette's blood was found in Kristen's room, which investigators questioned because all three victims were found in separate rooms. Blood evidence indicated that Kristen, the youngest daughter, was attacked as she entered the master bedroom and not while lying in her bed. This led investigators to question why the intruders would attack the girl and then carry her back to bed. Based on the McDonald's all having different blood types, the forensic investigators were able to do a forensic reconstruction of the events that likely occurred. This is what the reconstruction showed. Jeffrey and Colette likely had an argument in the master bedroom, possibly about Kristen wetting the bed or the fact that Jeffrey was cheating on Colette. Investigators speculate that Colette hit Jeffrey in the forehead with a hairbrush. They speculated that Jeffrey retaliated and hit Colette, with his hands, and then a piece of lumber. After hearing the noise, they believe Kimberly came into the room as her blood and brain serum were found in the master bedroom doorway. They also think that Jeffrey struck Kimberly in the head, possibly by accident, and believing Colette to be dead, 
he carried Kimberly back to her bedroom and killed her there. Investigators believe that Colette must have awoken and went into Kristen's room to protect her younger daughter and throwing her body over Kristen and her blanket to protect her. Colette's blood was found on Kristen's blanket and it's believed that Jeffrey killed them both there before staging the scene of all of them being in their own bedrooms. Jeffrey had left a smudged footprint on the floor in Colette's blood as he exited Kristen's room carrying Colette back to the master bedroom. The investigators theorized that Jeffrey was trying to cover up the murders using articles as he read on the Manson murders from Esquire magazine, which was found in the living room. They also think that after he murdered his family, he staged his own injuries by taking a scalpel and stabbing himself in the bathroom. Jeffrey denied that the weapons came from his own home, even though the piece of wood his family was bludgeoned with came from Kimberly's bedroom doorway. In May of that year, Jeffrey McDonald was formally charged with three counts of murder. After a grand jury and a lengthy trial, and if you want to know more details, we will include the Wikipedia and Murderpedia pages in our show notes. The trial was so long. It goes on for, like, I think this happened in the 70s and, like, the trial ended in 79. There were so many details. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That might be one of the longest trials in history. It was, I maybe it didn't start in the 70s and 70, might have started later after like, I think grand jury and stuff was 70, but maybe it was like 74, 75 when it like officially started, but it went on for so long. That's still a five, almost a five year trial then. Yeah. And I think the defense had actually found someone in the area that matched the description of the woman he described. So that was like a big like twist in it. Mm -hmm. Like they found like a woman with like, hair and wore a floppy hat with like blonde hair not just hair (laughs) but i don't think she was connected it's just an insane this whole thing is insane yeah i would definitely recommend checking out the murderpedia and wikipedia page because there is so much information and so many forensic details that go into this Mm -hmm. but ultimately jeffrey mcdonald was found guilty of first degree murder in the death of Kristen and two counts of second-degree murder in the deaths of Colette and Kimberly. Colette, Kimberly, and Kristen were laid to rest next to each other, and while their headstones originally had their last name as McDonald, it was later changed to Colette's maiden name, Stevenson. I like that they changed the name. Yeah. I feel like that gives their other family members some type of closure or, like, dissociation away from Jeffrey. Mm -hmm. It also had... This was such a huge case that I'm sure they got people looking for their graves mm-hmm. as well. Oh, true. Yeah. And so, because I'm sure there's people on Jeffrey's side of the family that also mourned their loss. Like Jeffrey's parents were mourning the loss of their granddaughters as well. And so it sucks that they don't have those people's last name anymore, but now maybe they get a little more privacy, a little more rest, I hope. I also, I wonder if people were kind of like looking for their graves and looking to destroy it and like put graffiti or like say bad things on it and they changed their last name to avoid that but that's just me like talking yeah i this is all mm-hmm. yeah this is all me speculating and it it's it's probably also like closure for the family and just maybe it just felt a little better to not yeah. have his last name on there i can't believe that they all had different blood types because that statistically is crazy insane that's such a key part in this whole case there's also i'm trying to look it up there's a book called fatal vision that i think was also turned into a tv miniseries yeah netflix did a thing about this book was by joe mcginnis 
wrote the book Fatal Vision. I was trying to find the author. I've never read it, but I'm familiar with this case. I've heard about it a lot, and it's just... It, like you said, it's insane that they all had different blood types. Because I think if they didn't and they all had the same blood type, say it's like A negative or AB, then they couldn't have done the reconstruction. They couldn't have figured out mm-hmm. that they were in this room and then he moved the body here and he staged that. I think that this would be a cold case if they didn't find that detail. Yeah. And it re- very much reminded me of in the episode as they were walking through, going through every little thing he touched every fingerprint reminded me of how they must have walked through mm-hmm. looking at every single little spot of blood think, okay this is colette's blood this is kimberly's blood this is his blood this is Kristen's blood and like the blood on his shirt even though he claimed he wasn't he didn't have it on like he claimed it was yeah oh another detail the fiber from his shirt being underneath Colette, even though he claimed Mm -hmm. he just tried to resuscitate her, he must have tried to move her at some point, whether or not it was just like tipping her on her side. Like, it couldn't have gotten underneath her without you (laughs) moving her in some way. It's all the forensic work in that case is crazy. Yeah, this is a really interesting case to just read about for the forensic details alone Mm -hmm. that's why i did we didn't get into the trial which i'm sure is fascinating in its own right yeah but we were really just focusing on the forensics we would be here forever all day (laughs) all day if we got into the details of the (laughs) trial but we will include the murderpedia and wikipedia pages if you want to read more about that yeah so to end this episode we tallied a total of two green flags and two red flags so in our opinion, this episode of Crossing Jordan is a tie, which I think is actually the best an episode of Crossing Jordan has done. I think we've failed them the last two times we've watched them. Yeah, they're not very forensically accurate, but they are. They're fun to watch. <laughs> they're entertaining. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Morgue. If you enjoy our podcast and want to learn more about forensics, keep on listening. You can find us on Instagram at Inside the Morgue Pod and DM us any episode suggestions you may have. We'll be back next week for a brand new dissection. Bye! Bye.